1 Chronicles 29 is God's word to us, so let's ask him to help us, to help us understand it and apply it to our lives. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank and praise you for 1 Chronicles 29 and its message to us. Please help us to understand it. Please let us not walk out of here unchanged, but help us, having understood your word, to be changed by it so that we become the kind of people that you want us to be. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since I've been in ministry, a number of people have asked me a question. They ask, why don't you talk about money? People have noticed that I rarely ask for money for our church. A couple of times a month in the order of service, we publish on the back, we publish our giving compared to our budget, so people are informed. But in the 13 years that I have been here, we have never appealed to the church for money for the church. Of course, we do have a couple of other appeals each year. Warren just appealed a second ago for missionaries and so on, but never for our church itself. Anyway, people ask, why don't you talk much about money? And my answer is always this. I say, well, when it's the topic in our Bible passage, then I deal with it. So as we work through the Bible systematically, book by book, I talk about money when it comes up. Well, tonight it comes up. We're working through the book of 1 Chronicles. We've been working through it for the last two or three months now, haven't we? And we've come now to chapter 29. Chapter 29 is all about people giving generously for the building of God's temple. So put your wallets where you can't reach them and get ready. Uh, in this last section of 1 Chronicles, David's called a big meeting. Do you remember he's called all the influential people, all the big wigs who were named in, cha- named in chapter 27. He's invited all the leaders in Israel and he's challenged them. He said, I want you to help Solomon to build the temple. And he's challenged Solomon. He said, Solomon, I want you to do the job bravely, wholeheartedly, willingly. Now in chapter 29, David puts his money where his mouth is. He starts off by reminding everyone about the massive donations that he's dedicated for the temple materials so far. He says again that Solomon is young and experienced. He says the temple has to be great because it's for God, not for men. It's got to be an opera house, not a UTS building. And so he, he says that he's given big to provide materials for the temple. 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 1. Have a look with me. 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 1. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble, all of these in large quantities. David has raised incredible amounts for this temple. But now he goes a step further. Now he actually gives his own personal money. This is his own money, his personal treasure. And again, it's in extraordinary amounts. Have a look at verse 3. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God over and above everything I've provided for this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir. Now just flick your eyes with me down to the bottom of the page there. 
can you see 3,000 talents of gold that is 100,000 kilograms of gold last Tuesday the price of gold was $49,610 per kilogram so that is four billion nine hundred and sixty one million dollars worth of gold that's the gold and back to the passage David says seven thousand talents of refined silver at the bottom you can see that's two hundred and forty thousand kilograms of silver last Tuesday the price of a kilo of silver was one thousand two hundred and eighteen dollars so that is two hundred and ninety two million three hundred and twenty thousand dollars worth of silver gold and silver he's given personal his personal treasures of gold and silver for the overlaying overlaying of the walls of the buildings for the gold work and the silver work and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen that's pretty generous wouldn't you say David is giving big time for God's temple total in today's dollar value is five billion two hundred and fifty three million three hundred and twenty thousand dollars worth of gold and silver of David's personal wealth now this guy was richer even than some of us wasn't he <laughs> but uh, but Bill Gates and Warren Buffett style David's given it all and now he lays down a challenge he says who's with me who's with me who's ready to join me in giving hard in giving big to God halfway through verse 5 David says now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? There's the challenge. And the leaders rise to it. They also give generously to the work of God's temple. Verse 6. Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the work on the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 darics of gold. 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Any who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel, the Gershonite. These leaders have given big. Uh, all these numbers were too big for my calculator, so I was having to work it out with a pencil, and I just saw it got too much for me. But this is billions of dollars worth of stuff, again. So there's heaps and heaps. And, and it impresses the ordinary people. As the ordinary people see the generosity of their leaders, they thank God. They're full of joy. And David himself rejoices as well. Verse 9. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. And David now turns to God in prayer. He starts off, praising God he says God you are the great king you are you are the owner of all things you are the one who gives us all good things you deserve to be praised you deserve to be thanked verse 10 David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly saying praise be to you O Lord God of our father Israel from everlasting to everlasting yours O Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours yours O Lord is the kingdom you are exalted as head over all wealth and honor come from you you are the ruler of all things 
In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. David's praised God. And now he thinks about God's people. And what he says is, he says, it is just amazing that we could be able to give to the work of God on earth. He says, that is an incredible privilege. He says, it's all your money anyway. We're nothing. We're, we're, we're nobodies. You don't need us. You don't need our money. And yet you graciously give us the privilege of giving for your work on earth. Verse 14. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we've provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. It's an interesting thought, if you think about it. If it all belongs to God, if it's all his, if he doesn't need anything, why would you give to him? It's a strange logic, isn't it? If he doesn't need it, if he's got it all, if he owns everything, why should we give anything to him? Strange logic. It's a similar logic, though, if you think about it, with prayer, isn't it? I mean, if God is going to do what God is going to do, if God is completely sovereign and in control, then why would we ever pray? Well... God gives us the privilege of praying. He doesn't need our prayers, but he graciously chooses to use our prayers to further his sovereign work. It's like a dad uh, fixing the car. Certainly not me, but maybe another dad who's competent fixing the car. And, um, and a little son comes. says, oh, dad, can I help you fix the car? The dad doesn't need the son to help fix the car. In fact, the son's in the way. It's just annoying to have the son fixing the car. But if the dad is a godly dad, a good dad, he will graciously let the son help. God doesn't need our prayers and yet he graciously chooses to use our prayers to further his work in the world. It's the same with money. God doesn't need Israel's money but he's given them the privilege of giving. He will graciously use their money to bring glory to his name through the temple. Can you see they're not doing him a favour? He's doing them a favour. It's a privilege that they can give for God's work. But even more than that, it's not just a privilege. David says that God is pleased when Israel give, when they give with right motives. Verse 17. I know, my God, says David, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with an honest intent and now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. There's another interesting thought, if you think about it. The idea that God is pleased when with right motives we give back to him what he gave to us. Let me say it again, it's a long sentence. God is pleased when we, with right motive, give back to him what he gave to us in the first place. Reminds me of something that happens with my children. Uh, often on a Friday after school, I pick up my kids from school and I take them out. So we go to the beach or we go uh, bike riding or whatever. On the way home, we often stop in at Beacon Hill McDonald's for dinner. Uh, when we have McDonald's, we get a 
Family 3 box. Now the Family 3 box contains four packets of chips. There are five of us, me and four children. So what I do, I give each of my kids one packet of chips, which of course leaves none for me. That means if I want a chip, one of my children has to give it to me. I remember the first time it happened. I said to one of my unnamed sons, may I have a chip please? The answer, no, they're my chips. As you can imagine, I felt annoyed. Now I could easily have bought another packet of chips. I'm not that poor. I could easily have gone without a chip. That wouldn't have hurt me at all. But I thought, no, there's an important lesson here for my children. So I explained the situation to them. I said, I gave you those chips. In fact, I gave you the whole meal. In fact, I give you every meal you eat. And I give you a house to live in. And I give you a bed to sleep in, and blankets to be warm by, and clothes to wear, and toys to play with. I pay for your electricity. I pay for your gas. I pay for you to go to school. I drive you around like a taxi driver. I've taken you out this afternoon on the afternoon of my day off. I give you everything you have. If I ask you for a chip, a chip that I gave you in the first place, don't you think you should give it to me? Don't you think you should give it to me graciously? Don't you think you should give it to me willingly? If you are still hungry at the end of our meal, I can buy you more chips. Chips are not the issue. The issue is, how are you treating your dad who gives you everything that you have? My children have learned the lesson. Very well. Now I don't need to ask for a chip. They fall over themselves to offer me chips with grace and willingness. I think they actually like that they can offer their dad a chip. They feel good about giving back to their dad. And I have to say, I find it very pleasing. I really like it when they, of their own volition, offer me a chip from their packet. To me, it's more than just a chip. To me, it's an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement that I have given them what they have. It's an acknowledgement that they are thankful. It's an acknowledgement that they love me and want to give to me and would give to me if they could give to me. It says good things about who they are. They are not little ingrates. They are gracious children who love and thank their dad. It says good things about our relationship, that we love each other. All from a chip. David says God doesn't need anything from Israel. Anything they give to God, he gave to them in the first place. But like a father, God is pleased when his children give. When they give willingly, with honest intent, out of love for the God who gave them everything. David's praised God. He's talked about God's people. And now he comes to the asking part of his prayer. He says, God, will you please help us stay generous? Will you help us stay loyal? Will you help us persevere in this good thing that we've done today? And he says, God, will you please help Solomon to do the job? Verse 18. 
O Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements and decrees and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. David then calls on Israel to praise God, which they do that day and the next day. They bow before God, they offer sacrifices, they have a feast. Verse 20, Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed low and fell prostrate. That's prostrate, not prostrate, as someone read on Wednesday. Before the Lord and the king. The next day they made sacrifices to the Lord and presented burnt offerings to him. A thousand bulls, a thousand rams and a thousand male lambs together with their drink offerings and other sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. They ate and drank with great joy in the presence of the Lord that day. The author then tells us about Solomon. He says that the people crowned him as king and God made him a great king. Halfway through verse 22. Then they acknowledged Solomon, son of David, as king a second time, anointing him before the Lord to be ruler and Zadok to be priest. So Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of his father David. He prospered and all Israel obeyed him. All the officers and mighty men as well as as all of King David's sons pledged their submission to King Solomon. The Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal splendor such as no king over Israel ever had before. And then the author finishes the book with a a quick summary of David's reign as king and he tells us where we can find more information about him. Verse 26. David, son of Jesse, was king over all Israel. He ruled over Israel 40 years, seven in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. He died at a good old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth and honor. His son Solomon succeeded him as king. As for the events of King David's reign from beginning to end, they are written in the records of Samuel the seer, the records of Nathan the prophet, and the records of Gad the seer, together with the details of his reign and power and the circumstances that surrounded him in Israel and the kingdoms of all the other lands. All right, that's 1 Chronicles. Well done, you've made it to the end. Now, as, as we've said every week through this series, The key to understanding this book is to understand that it was written in around about 400 BC. Do you remember that goes right back to the first talk and we looked at the genealogies and saw that the genealogies take us to about 400 BC. So it's got to be written around about then. But the events that it's describing are way, way earlier. So King David, King Solomon, they're around about 1000 BC. So what this author is doing, he's writing an ancient history of Israel, but he's writing it for his own people. And so the way to understand it is to understand what would this mean for Israel in 400 BC? How would this comfort them? How would this challenge Israel in the days of the chronicler? Now, as we've also seen over the last couple of weeks, Israel in the days of chronicles, they had God's temple. But by 400 BC, they'd kind of lost enthusiasm for it. It didn't seem like it was worth giving generously to maintain this temple. I mean, it was just this little temple and Israel was this little country in the part of the massive Persian Empire. It didn't seem like God was that powerful. It didn't seem like his temple was that important. They they didn't really, they were doing it tough and it was hard to really give hard for the temple, for the Levites, for the priesthood, for the sacrifices. They were really struggling to be generous. So what's this story saying to them? Well, by reminding Israel of their history, the author's challenging them, isn't he? He's challenging them. He's saying, your God is the one true God. Your God is the eternal God. 
Your God is the owner of everything in heaven and on earth. Your God is the God who gives you every good thing. Your God is worthy of all your praise, all your worship. Your God is worthy of the kind of generosity that David showed, the kind of generosity that those leaders showed back then. God doesn't need your money. He's the one who gave it to you in the first place. But God offers Israel the privilege of giving for his work so that his temple is maintained and his name is glorified. And not only that, God is even pleased when his people give. Like when my children give me a chip. He's pleased when it's an expression of a heart that genuinely loves and thanks him. It is a privilege and God is pleased. And so the message for Israel in 400 BC is very simple. Give! Give hard, give big, give generously, give wholeheartedly, give for the work of God's temple, give freely and willingly. Okay. As we've also seen over these last couple of weeks, for us, the temple is not a building in Jerusalem anymore. The temple is not a building at all. It's not this building or any other building. God has come to dwell with us in the person of Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus is God's temple. And now when we trust in Jesus, God comes to dwell in us by his Holy Spirit and unites us to Jesus. So we become the dwelling place of God. The temple now is Jesus and the people who rely on him. It's a temple on legs, as Warren said a couple of weeks ago. And the way that the temple grows now is as those legs get walking and those mouths get talking, as people evangelize and as they build up other Christians by by reading the Bible. The, The temple is built as people put their trust in Jesus and as they grow in their obedience to him. We have a different temple from David, a different temple from Chronicles. And temple building is a different job. But I tell you what, we do have the same God. We do have the same God. Our God is the same God as David's God, the same God as the God of Chronicles. It is still true today here in Chatswood, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11, that everything in heaven and on earth is God's. That is true here now. It is still true here now, verse 12, that any wealth, any honor that you have came to you from God. It is still true, verse 14, that everything comes from him and we can only give him what comes from his hand. It is still true here today that giving to God's work on earth is a privilege. You're not doing God any favors. He's doing you a favor by letting you help. It says in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, giving to God's work is a privilege. It is still true, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 17, that God is pleased with generous giving from a willing heart. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver, not a grumbly giver, a cheerful giver. God is the same. He still offers you and me the privilege of partnering with him in this world. And he is still pleased when we graciously and willingly give back to him some of what he gave to us. And in the New Testament, God has told us some of the ways that we can give back, some of the ways that God offers us to help him in his work in this world. Uh, On your outline there, I've put a few. 
Can you see on the right-hand side down near the, uh, down near the bottom there? Can you, can you see Ephesians 4.28? Ephesians chapter 4.28 written to Christians. Can you see there a good way to spend your money? See, it's good to give to the needy. Can you see that there? What about the next one? Galatians 6.6. 6. Can you see a good thing to do with your money that God encourages us to do? It's good to support people who teach you about Jesus from God's word. Or Philippians 4. Can you see the next one? It's good to give to missionaries. God has set out ways that we can use our money for his work. We can still have that privilege. God will still be pleased. Which brings me to our church and its finances. Let me tell you our church, about our church and its finances. In our church, we have a general collection every week. Uh, around about 85% of the collection comes to us through electronic giving, through those people who give just straight to the bank electronically. It's around about 85%. And the rest, the other 15%, comes through those collection bags on Sundays. The money is collected, it's accounted for, a couple of people sign for it, it's put in the bank, and then around about 65% of the collection is then used to support me and Warren and Rebecca. That's 65%. And so that's a case of Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. You are providing for those who instruct you and your family in the word. Now, nobody else is benefiting from our work. You're the ones benefiting from it. And here is your opportunity to pay for it. Uh, 65%. About 10% of our collection goes to our students. So that is a case of training up and supporting missionaries who we're sending to far-flung places like Victoria and Queensland and New South Wales and Japan and Ecuador. That's 10%. Around, around about another 10% goes back to our denomination uh, to support the Bible College, to support ministry and mission, assembly and so on. Uh, a bit goes to Alawa Children's Hospital. So that's a case of, of helping the needy, as it said there in the Bible. And around about 10% goes towards maintaining our buildings and other administrative expenses. That's our, that's our general collection. That's where your money is going to week by week. Now, on top of that, during the year, we have three appeals for money. So at Easter, we support a group called Presaid. And at Christmas, we support something called the Tear Fund. And both of those are cases of giving to the needy. Uh, the money goes to uh, Christians who are helping poor people overseas. Uh, so that's two, Easter and Christmas. And then the third one is Mission Sunday, coming up next week. Uh, last year, we gave uh, around about $30,000, which is equivalent to about 10% of our total collection. It doesn't come from our collection, but it's around about, it's just under 10%. Uh, so that $30,000 goes to the work of the six missionaries that we support along here. It will go to their work. Um, just one other thing, in the last couple of years, we've also brought to your attention the needs of REACH, that is the scripture teaching ministry in our local high schools. We haven't had formal appeals for REACH, but we've commended REACH to you for your giving. The reason we haven't had a formal appeal is that you can get a tax deduction for it. So it's better if you give to it than if we give, because we don't get the tax deduction. Now, you need to realise this. I get a constant stream of calls and letters and emails asking me to ask you for money. There would not be a week that goes by where I don't get an email or a letter or a call saying, can you please ask your congregation to give you money to X, X good cause? Every single one of them that I get, I throw straight in the bin. Because I believe that what we currently ask you to give are all good, godly, biblical causes worthy of your money. And I think they're enough. 
I think that if you give generously to our church and to those three appeals that we make each year, that is a good spread of your money. It reflects well the kinds of things that God is asking you to give for, for the needy, for mission, for, for, for supporting Bible teachers. And so that's what we encourage you to give for. All right, that's our church and its finances. Before I finish, I just do, do want to quickly apply this passage to us. I think you probably know where I'm going to go, but uh, let's talk about it. What does 1 Chronicles chapter 29 say to us? Well, first, let me, let me address those of you who are giving generously for God's work. Let me say this to you from 1 Chronicles chapter 29. God doesn't need your money. You're not doing him any favours. In fact, he's doing you a favour. He is graciously using your money to further his work in this world. Just think about that. He is graciously using your money to further his work in the world. What a privilege. Good on you for taking up the privilege. Money well spent. Good investment. And you know, God is pleased. God is pleased. He is pleased when you give willingly. He's pleased when you give generously. He's pleased when you joyfully offer him a chip from the happy meal he gave you, so to speak. All right? It is a good thing that you are doing. Let's, let's, pray, that like King, let's pray like King David did, uh, like King David did for Israel. Let's pray that you keep it up, that you stay loyal and faithful like this. That's for those who are giving generously. Now let me address those of you who are not giving for God's work or perhaps who are giving stingingly, stingily or whingingly or begrudgingly who are saying to God, these are my chips. Let me say this to you. Your money is your money. God has richly given it to you for you to enjoy. He's given it to you. It is yours. God doesn't need your money. And our church doesn't need your money either because we are blessed with so many people who are generous. You do what you want to do with your money. But do reflect on 1 Chronicles chapter 29, won't you? Because you're missing out on a great privilege. You're missing out on being able to invest in eternity. And you're revealing where your heart is. I don't like it when my children won't give back to me of what I have given to them. I think it shows a profound failure to appreciate who I am. I think it shows a deep failure to understand what I have done for them. I think it shows an ugly ingratitude. I do not want my children to be like that. I suspect God might feel the same way about what you're doing. Don't you? Okay, well, that's the end of 1 Chronicles. I hope that as we've worked through David's life, you've been encouraged, you've been challenged. We're going to come back to 2 Chronicles next year, early on next year. Uh, next week, though, we'll start a new series. Warren will start, oh, you'll start us off in the evening, won't you? Uh, next week, a new series in 2 Timothy in, in uh, the New Testament. For now, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank and praise you because you are 
incredibly generous towards us. You are the owner of everything in heaven and on earth. Every single piece of wealth or honor that we have comes from you. Father, we want to acknowledge that, that you are our generous Father who gives us every good thing. We pray, Heavenly Father, that in response to your generosity, we might love you and that we might show that love by what we generously give for your work. We thank you for the privilege of being able to um, uh, being able to give to you that you would use our money for your work in this world and we're amazed that you would be pleased with it. Thank you for your wonderful fatherly love. In Jesus' name, amen.